0: Welcome to episode 30 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know about defense and security. I'm Steve Sadman. Stephanie Van Latke, the co-host of Battle Rhythm, is on vacation. So we'll have Alvine Ninte, who's been working behind the scenes of Battle Rhythm for the past year and has been a key part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's origin story. We'll first talk to her about her part in the CDSN and what she's learned about working with us. Then we'll talk about the retirement of John Vance, and what that means for the Canadian forces. We'll go on to talk about changes in Canadian deployments uh, in places like Iraq and in Africa. Then we'll go and talk a little bit about uh, the U.S. move out of Germany and what this means for NATO and what this means ultimately for the next president of the United States. And then we'll have our Emerging Scholar interview with a different kind of Emerging Scholar, Major Kelly, who is the Deputy Commanding Officer of Mapping and Charting, establishment with the Canadian Armed Forces, was a master's candidate at the Canadian Armed Forces Joint Command and Staff Program, and he wrote a, a really great paper that he talks about with Stephanie. And then we'll talk to uh, Stephanie Vilaki of all people, and Justin Massey about their new network, the Network for Strategic Analysis. And then we'll conclude, of course, with my R&R segment, where I recommend a couple of things to watch and one book to read. Thank you for listening. On today's Battle Rhythm, we have a special guest, uh, Stephanie Von Lackey is on vacation. So we're talking to Alvin Intai, who has been the research assistant for the CDSN even before the C- CDSN existed. Welcome to Battle Rhythm, Alvin.
1: I see. Thanks for having me.
0: It's our pleasure. Uh, she's been working for us since we were applying for the grants, and uh, she'll be working for us for just one more month before she moves on to her next thing. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing at first when you joined the CDSN effort.
1: Okay, so I joined the CDSN in the very early stages when you used to describe the CDSN as a community of defense and security experts looking for funding, right? Mm-hmm. I joined during the time we were we were in search for funding. And my role at that time was working with participants and partners to put together their part of the grant application. And luckily for us, the grant gods smiled on us and the CDSN became a community that was funded.
0: (laughs) Yes, the money does help, including paying for your salary. You were paid before that, of course. I don't want to say that we (laughs) exploited you ruthlessly before that. But since then, what were the kind of things you've been doing for the CDSN?
1: Since then, um, my work has become much more interesting. The CDSN
0: has
1: (laughs) engaged in a number of projects, and I've been part of those. A huge part of what I've done is just attend meetings that you've had sometimes with partners and participants. So that has been incredibly useful for me. I've been in meetings with senior military officers, senior policymakers or former policymakers, and I've learned so much in those meetings. Another thing I've done with the CDSN is just help put together the CDSN events. So our conferences, the Capstone Conference being one of them, and also the CDSN flagship event, which is the year ahead. And then finally, I've also been part of doing research for the Battle Rhythm podcast since its inception.
0: Yes, you've been a key uh, part of our podcast, helping us sound smart by giving us the news that we need to figure out Uh, What was the most memorable experience?
1: One that stands out was meeting senior women, um, military officers from NATO and NATO allied countries. So these were about 11 women who were in Canada for the Halifax International Security Forum. Um, We also had them here in Ottawa, and they were interviewed for the Battle Rhythm podcast. Not only did their interviews demonstrate their deep expertise and experience, they were incredibly down to earth and very open. So that was really just a highlight of my time with the CDSM.
0: Yeah, that's episode 11 from November of 2019. The Halifax International Security Forum brings these women from across the Alliance and it takes them across North America. They go to DC to learn the DC policy process. They took them to Silicon Valley to find out about high-tech stuff. They brought them across Canada and they got briefed and had exchanges with people in government here. And while they were here, we had the opportunity to talk to them. I'm hoping that becomes a regular thing because it was a really interesting podcast. And yes, the women were super impressive. What was the most instructive thing about working with the CDSN?
1: Oh, but that's that's a big question because I I've learned so much during my time with 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 you and the CDS and the rest of the team. I just have to say that first and foremost, your work mm-hmm. ethic is truly inspiring, yours and Stephanie's. So I will definitely take that lesson with me as I move um move on in my professional life. But what has been most instructive for me has been understanding the importance of reaching across, building bridges, bridging gaps to forge meaningful relationships with partners and, and other people to open up the conversation and invite others into the conversation. So I think about the fact that the CDSN is a network. It only works because of the incredible partners and the scholars and other participants that are part of the network. This has led me to understand that sharing knowledge can be incredibly generative. It can lead to innovative ways of thinking about challenges. So definitely understanding the importance of relationships, of nurturing those relationships, of expanding those relationships, and also of expanding the conversations that we can have around particular topics and bring in more people into those conversations.
0: Well, and that's really interesting because one of the things that always strikes me when I talk to the military is, when I talk to them about their stuff, they always talk about relationships. It seems like either we're imitating them, or it just seems that there's a commonality about how to make things work, and it involves developing understanding of each other, developing trust, having lots of exchanges to learn from each other. And you're actually an example of that because your work is on IPE mostly, on international political economy. So what did you find most interesting about defense and security, given that this is not really your area of uh, focus?
1: Exactly. One thing that has been really interesting for me is just seeing the ways in which themes kind of occur even across disciplines or across focus. So um, when I study international economic regimes, something that comes up often is just the challenge of collective action problems. And also being in a defense and security space, I also encounter that theme, right? That so much of defense and security policies about how to resolve collective action problems. But another part of the defense and security conversation that I've found particularly fascinating is the conversation around how to diversify the military. So a huge part of what the CD and has been talking about is how to diversify and open up the defense and security space. For me, this conversation has, has just been very eye-opening, looking at past efforts, evaluating their, their successes and where they've fallen short, and then looking at efforts that are currently underway and thinking about how those efforts can yield better results in terms of bringing in more women into the military in meaningful ways and bringing in different kinds of people in, in ways that transform the military essentially.
0: Part of that, I guess, these days is thinking about what's going to happen with the retirement of of John Vance. The chief defense staff is is stepping down after five plus years. And it's getting a lot of people thinking about the next person because one of the challenges in all of this is that Vance had a variety of initiatives Operation Honor, which was aimed at trying to improve the situation, particularly of women in the military. One of his last policies that was put out right before he announced his retirement is one on hateful conduct. And so it raises a real question about how to create change, how to change a culture. He's had more time than most CDSs. But as we've observed over the past few years, cultures are organizational cultures are resistant to change. So one of the big questions will be how much of this sticks after he leaves. Uh, what are your first thoughts about Vance retiring?
1: Very much to your point. I thought it was interesting that in one of his final interviews before the announcement was made, or in his exit interview, I think, he talked about whether he had any regrets. And he, he noted that he had none, but nonetheless talked about the need for the military as an institution to continue to reform itself and to be more open to to women, to other kinds of people. And so I just thought it was really interesting that this was the one issue he chose to highlight on his way out, the need to continue to work on reforming the military from within and continue to push the military to open itself up to women, to racialized minorities, and to continue to transform itself.
0: So this leaves the question of who's going to be the next CDS. Do you have any uh, wagers on this? Uh, on Twitter, Steph challenged me to be the organizer of a pool. Are you going to enter the pool?
1: I think that certainly a woman should be considered seriously. So the retiring general was asked the question of whether he thought a woman should replace him. And he said, you know, very diplomatically that he he felt that the most important criteria was that his replacement should be qualified tonight. And I think just to add to that, of course, there are plenty of qualified women who who could serve as his replacement. So I think for me, I'm just looking to see whether Trudeau government commits itself to a military that is more inclusive of women by putting a woman in one of the top positions, if not the top position.
0: It yeah, will be very striking. I think that the Trudeau government at, at various points of time had wanted to be the first NATO country to have a a woman as head of their military, but I believe with Slovakia has have beaten us to do it. Slovakia or Slovenia. So people are definitely looking at that. And there are several, or there, there's a handful of people who, women who fit the the bill. Christine Cross has been uh, mentioned over the past several years, not just now, but for the past several years as a possible candidate. She put in a re- her retirement papers, but that doesn't mean that she's retired yet. So she could be asked to serve. I've heard rumors that she had been asked previously and, and said no. So We'll see if she's more interested now and whether the government's interested in her. There's Fran Allen, who has a background in cyber warfare, and that might make sense at this moment in time, given that that's an increased priority for the military. We interviewed Major General Carigno last spring, uh, one of our very first podcasts. She might be a bit junior for this role, but she's a very dynamic, interesting person, so she could be a viable candidate. Uh, she wouldn't be the first 2nd sec- uh, two-star elevated to four stars, skipping the third-star rank what I understand. So those are the three most likely candidates if if they are determined to pick a woman, and they're all very qualified. It's a variety of military experiences behind them. If it's not a woman, it could be any one of several men. It could be any of the current chiefs of the various services, Army, Navy, or Air Force. It could be the vice chief of the defense staff, which will be Mike Rulo, who was mentioned about in in this capacity before he was made vice chief. Uh, Of course, if the Trudeau government puts Mike Rulo into this position, then we'll have to find another vice chief of the defense staff. And we've already gone through seven since Vance became uh, chief of the defense staff. And that's making that position look like the spinal tap drummer, which means that the that position is just constantly in a spin cycle, which is not really good for the military since that is a key position for administrating the military. And if you want to have an organizational change. It's not just the chief of the defense staff that plays a major role, but also the vice chief in coordination with the chief and in coordination with the deputy minister and with the other people. And so that position needs some stability. But since RLO has only been that position for a couple of weeks... It, it, you know, changing them now would not necessarily do that much damage, but there's a, a lot of uncertainty about this. But I guess we'll find out in the next month or two who's the next leader of the Canadian Armed Forces, which leads us to the next question of, of where are they going to be? You spotted two st- news stories, one about the C-130 in Africa and the reduction of forces in Iraq. Alvin, what are your thoughts on that?
1: With regards to the Canadian peacekeeping efforts in Africa, I thought that was interesting because, on one hand, it signals the government's commitment to continued engagement with the world, particularly with regards to peacekeeping. After digging deeper into this story, I realized that it was actually only the partial fulfillment of a promise. So, other parts of of that promise of, of greater engagement have not yet been fulfilled. So, for example, the Trudeau government also pledged a quick reaction force composed of up to 200 troops, and, and we don't know whether that will happen. So, so, yes, on one hand, it seems as though the government is trying to look at so it's engaging more with the world, despite losing its bid for a two-year seat on the Security Council. But on the other hand, it's, it's not clear that those efforts are going far enough or that they're going as far as the government promised they would.
0: Yeah, I, I, the thing about having a C-130 in Africa is it, it's the very least... They can do. It's very, very low risk. It is very, very small number of personnel. Now we don't have that many C-130s, so that requirement is is significant, and it makes a big impact because it's something that is de- desperately needed by the UN in Africa. So they care about it, but it shows a level of concern that or interest that is minimal rather than maximal. It's definitely something you can keep on doing after you fail to get a U.N. Security Council seat, and I think pulling it out would have been seen as being particularly spiteful, mm. and that would have would not have been a good look, particularly as the government continues to get criticism for not doing enough on peacekeeping. Mm. So it makes sense to keep it going, but again, it's part of this government's desire to have low risk. Speaking about low risk, the one way to look at the Iraq mission is how necessary was it to keep the same level of forces now as they were a couple of years ago. Once the Iraqis, particularly the Kurds, took back their lands from ISIS, did we really need to have a, a significant special operations presence in Iraq? And I think one reason to keep it there would have been Mostly, to prevent them from getting criticized by the conservatives or giving up on the war in, uh, against ISIS, that war has taken on new new forms with focus on on more training, and while we can send more trainers to Iraq, it seems like this is this is the perfect opportunity to say, "Well, we've done our our share here. We'll still play a role, but it doesn't have to be as big as it was before, and I think reducing the presence of the special operations forces makes sense because those guys, as being special means they' are few. And if you have them doing a lot of stuff, that means that the few are doing a lot of work and doing a lot of rotations. So reducing their presence makes a significant amount of sense, particularly as others are doing so. What may make less sense is pulling the United States out of Germany, or at least pulling a, a significant number of troops out of Germany. The Canadian deployment news is is getting eclipsed by the American deployment news that Donald Trump, because he's really upset at Angela Merkel, is pulling a significant number of troops out of Germany, some to be sent back to the United States, some to be redeployed in the rest of Europe. And this is getting a lot of news because it's part of Trump showing that he doesn't really care that much about, about NATO. Do you have some thought, thoughts on this?
1: Yeah. I think actually this for me was one of the more interesting stories of the week because of course the American election presidential election is on the horizon and Trump may get reelected we don't know or Joe Biden may be America's next president and so i'm wondering to what extent the military will actually follow through on this move particularly if Biden is elected will Biden continue down this path or will he seek to build a warmer relationship with with America's western european allies and I have another question for you, which is Trump seems upset by what he considers to be Germany's reluctance to pay its fair share and shoulder its fair share of of the NATO burden. To what extent is this view or position justified, even if we may not agree with how he's signaling his displeasure or disapproval?
0: Well, that's a really good question. I, I think that we can be upset or frustrated with Germany's defense policies. It's partly about money. It's partly about what they do with their money because they their Navy can't sail, their planes can't fly, and their tanks can't really drive. Their readiness is at, at a low. And so I think it's fair to criticize the Germans. I don't, you know, I don't think it makes sense to pull troops out. I think that's a, a, a bit too far. I think it's also problematic for Canada to jump up and down and say, woo, this is great because Canada also has its own spending shortfalls if one takes seriously the 2% NATO guideline. As always, when this comes up, I have to make a couple comments first. The guideline was supposed to kick in in 2024, and it's not 2024 yet. And the second is that measuring one's commitment to defense by percentage of dollars spent on one's own defense as, as a percentage of GDP, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The, the good news for all NATO countries is they're going to look really good in 2020 when the numbers are tallied for how much they spent on defense as a percentage of GDP, because they're all in recession thanks to the pandemic. And so with everybody having a smaller GDP, the math tells you, well, if you have a smaller denominator, then your percentage goes up. And that's gonna happen for Canada, that's gonna happen for Germany. Everybody's gonna look better, but it doesn't mean that we're more ready to fight the Russians or to do anything else. The more we could do to escape this so this this focus on this requirement, and focus more on the substance, the better. And of course the problem with Donald Trump is he doesn't understand even this because he refers to the Germans being delinquent as if they owe NATO or the United States back dues for their country club, that's not how it works. It's about how much money you spend in your military, not how much money you give to, to the US or NATO. So there's no delinquency. there's no back taxes, there's none of, none of that stuff. I do think that it's possible to put pressure. I think the good news for Germany, And the good news for Canada is that while the United States would still like them to spend more, a Biden presidency would not put as much pressure because they would not want to send the signal that they're just like Trump. They're going to want to send the signals that they're different from Trump. And so while they'll still want better burden sharing, I don't think that they're going to be quite as blunt and as focused on it. Every NATO meeting since Trump became president has been entirely about burden sharing rather than the purposes of what NATO is supposed to do, such as deter the Russians, try to do some uh, training and and development in uh, the Middle East and Africa so that way Europeans get less refugees and and things like that, and maybe even contemplate what can NATO do about China. These are not topics that are discussed because everybody's so focused on the 2% thing because of Donald Trump's obsession. So I do think that uh, the election, if it goes Biden's way, will definitely produce not just a new tenor about it, but I think it'll reduce the focus on it entirely just because everybody is is sick and tired of this and they want to move on and talk about the real issues.
1: So speaking about Trump and and real issues, I am going to pose a bit of a controversial question. Why Germany? Why must American troops be stationed in Germany? And of course, America's military relationship with Germany dates back to the end of the Second World War, World War, to the Cold War, countering the Soviet threat. But of course, we live in a post-Cold War era. So I, I wonder whether there is something to be said for America's relationship with Germany to evolve, where America's troop presence in Germany isn't as necessary. What What do you make of that position? We're not in the the Cold War situation anymore. Physical presence of American troops in Germany, I I don't know whether that's necessary or as necessary anymore.
0: Well, we're now in a post-post-Cold War world. And so (laughs) I I think you're right that we should raise questions about what they're doing there. The Obama administration did raise questions. And one of the things that was going on under the Obama administration was moving troops out of Europe, mostly as the vaunted pivot that the United States was gonna focus more on Asia and let the Europeans focus more on Europe. Then the Russians invaded Ukraine, took over Crimea, and have threatened the Baltics. And so you saw the return of American troops to Europe. So I think that there's still a need for American troops in Europe, and they're in Germany in large part to help facilitate the deployments to the Baltics. That had the reset with Russian relations gone better, had the Russians been content to stay within their borders, then I think you're right that we could have thought more about redeploying troops. And to be fair, the American presence in Europe is much smaller than it was in 1991, that there's many fewer troops all across Europe and particularly in Germany than during the Cold War, so it's a much smaller presence. And the focus of that presence since 1981 was first staging troops into the Balkans to deal with ethnic conflict in the Balkans, and then to supporting the American operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. That Landstuhl is the Air Force base in Germany that is is the place where American casualties and also Canadian and Other casualties land and are taken care of before they are sent to their home countries. And that was a vital part of that war effort. And for the United States and for some of its allies, Afghanistan is still going on and there's still people being harmed in that conflict. And we still have troops, as as we talked about before, in Iraq. And so if anything happens to them, we'd want the base in Germany to be a key spot along the way back home. So they, they still serve a vital purpose, particularly given what's been going on in the Middle East and with Russia these days. The thing is, yes, we need to rethink about it. But the way this is playing out, it's not about rethinking where the United States should be in the world. It's about Donald Trump being upset at Angela Merkel. And that's simply just not a, a strategic way to behave. It's not about, you know, it's providing openings for the, the Russians. It's providing weakness for NATO. Will it encourage the rest of NATO to step up? They might have before the pandemic, but now the pandemic's gonna gut everybody's budgets. So it's hard to see how the rest of Europe's gonna spend a lot more money on defense at a time where they're gonna have to pay off all the money they spent on keeping their economies afloat during the pandemic and of all the money they have to spend on everything else involved with, with COVID nineteen. So that was a really good question and I'm really thankful for not only your participating on today's podcast, Alvin, but for being with us for the past two years. You've always provided a a good perspective, a fresh perspective. Since uh, you are a graduate student, you you see the world a little differently than than somebody who's in the business for (coughs) a long time. And you're also an immigrant to Canada, so you see Canada differently than a lot of the folks in the CDSN. You also, with your economist background, see things a little differently. So we're going to miss seeing the world through your eyes. And we hope that you keep in touch as you move on to bigger and better things
1: and Steve I just want to take this moment to thank you for being an incredible mentor Mm -hmm. to me I think that one thing that stands out is just your commitment to mentoring emerging scholars as, as we're called so so thank you so much because you're very busy you're involved in a lot of projects and yet you still make time to do the uncompensated work of being an incredible mentor and you've never had a crossword for me even when I probably didn't do things on time. All right. (laughs) So thank you. I appreciate your patience. I appreciate your kindness. And whoever gets to work with you after me is incredibly lucky.
0: Oh, that's very sweet. I appreciate it. And now the podcast will go to an interview with, well, Stephanie Von Latke and Justin Messi, who are the co-directors of the Network uh, for Strategic Analysis, also known as...
1: Le réseau
0: and the French is very important because they're trying to improve the bilingualism of Canadian defense and security studies, which actually Alvin's also played a role in since she's the best French speaker of the folks at CDSN HQ until the recent hire of our new project coordinator. After the segment with Justin and Stephanie, we will then have my R&R segment where I'll be focusing mostly on silly stuff because we sure need it in these times. Thanks again, Alvin. Thanks. And I look forward to, to working with you for one more month before you mosey onwards.
1: Thank you for having me, Steve. And I look forward to attending CDS and events in the years to come and to being part of the CDS family for a long time.
0: Terrific.
2: Hello, my name is Major T.J. Kelly, and I'm a recent graduate of the Canadian Forces College Masters of Defence Studies Program, and I've just come into Ottawa, where I'm working as the Deputy Commanding Officer of the Mapping and Charting Establishment, DND's geomatics organization.
3: I'm very grateful that you could make the time to join us on Battle Rhythm. We're here to talk about the thesis that you wrote as part of the Joint Command and Staff Program at the Canadian Forces College. Your thesis is called Correlation of Military Trade with Selection of General and Flag Officers. And it was nominated for the Brigadier General George Bell Medal, which celebrates excellence in military writing. Congratulations. I think that the first thing that I'll ask you to do before we dig into the discussion is to break down the title
2: and the topic of the project for our non-military listeners. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. What my thesis looks at is how one's military trade affects the possibility of becoming a general or an admiral, which is a general or flag officer, which I refer to in my paper as gofos, a common term that's made up of the acronym, as you know, the military love acronyms. A a military trade is something like, for me, I'm a combat engineer. It's a specific technical skill set that I bring as an officer in the Canadian Forces. Other examples would be infantry officer or pilot or naval warfare officer. In my thesis in particular, I look at my own trade, combat engineers, the infantry trade, the logistics trade, and the intelligence trade. As case studies while investigating the statistics of the broader Canadian forces and how a general officer's original trade affects their likelihood of reaching those flag ranks.
3: So what are some common assumptions about professional advancement in the Canadian Armed Forces, according to you?
2: When I started working on my thesis, my question was, do some trades generate more general officers than others? I was pretty sure I knew the answer, and I was right, Mm -hmm. but that information wasn't readily available because of the way we manage in a technical administrative sense are general officers. There's no simple way of finding out which trade they came from. Those linkages are broken when they pin on their star, when they are promoted to brigadier or commodore. And they are officially members of the general and flag officer trade in the forces. So so it breaks down that linkage, but it still exists. The ideas make a lot of sense. And these are not new ideas. The considerations of this sort began at least as early as 1969, when a major report known as the Rowley Report, officially the Officer Selection Board, looked into how we generate, train, and manage our officers from second lieutenants up to the general. And it makes sense for an Air Force officer to be the commander of the RCAF. It makes sense for an Army officer to command the Canadian Army. But there are a lot of other positions where there is no real affiliation of that sort. And similarly, and relevantly, we consider all our generals to be equivalent. And so there's a disconnect between theory and practice, which was what led me into this investigation. What did you
3: find in the end best explains the fact that certain trades are overrepresented in
2: senior leadership? Trades that are overrepresented, and I say that not as a aspersion, but as a comparison to others, are the ones that are combat oriented, the very military trades. In the Army, the infantry and the armored officers, in the Air Force, the pilots, and in the Navy, the naval warfare officers, are the most represented trades. And then as you move away from those specialties, so the combat specialties, you see decreasing representation. The reasons for this are diverse, and there's probably a lot of conflation among them, where legitimate reasons lead to ones that would not necessarily be perceived as legitimate if the biases could be untangled
3: and i suppose in trying to untangle all of this it's useful to look to either other countries or other professional sectors and in fact this is exactly what you did in your project you looked at the united states and you also looked at the civilian sector so which lessons did you find might be helpful when looking at
2: changes we may consider in the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, looking at those, I found that there's actually not a lot of academic writing on these topics for anyone. The only ones that I found a fair amount of research for was the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army has a very different fundamental position from the Canadian one, simply due to its size. And I say the U.S. Army, the U.S. military in general, but much of the writing I found was specific to the Army. Generally, the parts that are more joint reflect the same general perspectives as the Army writings that I was looking at. And they see a very similar perspective. I also looked at civilian executives. In the private sector, there's a fairly limited amount of research about how CEOs and C-suite executives are chosen, but there is some. And that research tends to follow the same method of thinking. Where do they come from and how do they get there? A lot of the research is really focused on how to replace CEOs and who can be switched in, but the look at what their background is, as opposed to what the company situation is, is fairly thin. The research that is there shows that there is a connection between c C-suite executive's Background as sort of, for example, engineering and production versus sales and marketing versus legal and accounting as sort of the three broad areas that the research I saw looked into. Those matter, and they tend to look for production people, the ones who understand the inner workings of the company rather than its interface with the external world like marketing or its technical execution like legal or finance. Another important consideration is how the public sector's civilians work and. What is becoming more and more popular is establishing merit criteria for a position rather than hierarchical promotion. And so I've looked at both of those and how the CAF should or should not apply some of those lessons learned.
3: Okay, so let's talk about that and perhaps specific recommendations you might have for the military and how to improve advancement. How much change do you think is required from the status quo in the
2: Canadian context? What my research shows is that we have a two-part problem and we can gradually fix both parts to generate a virtuous circle. These two parts are to increase the institutional respect for the capabilities of the officers of the support type trades. To understand, as General Daw explained, that operations are support, and support is operations. These two are intimately linked. That someone who can command, organize, and manage the logistics support for a major operation is a commander and a leader. They aren't just a supporter, which a lot of calf culture currently sees them as. In order to build this up, we need to put our supporters and have these support trades given access to more critical leadership positions and roles. There's things like infantry battalions don't Belong to logistics commands. That's not what I'm talking about. But maybe base commands, training establishments, many of the enabler functions that are often commanded by combat arms as grooming positions for future generals need to be shared by talent or in some way more general than this is an infantry billet. They put their best guys there. The flip side is that as we do this, those support trades need to put their best people there and really demonstrate the capability that their leaders have that their competence and aptitude. If we see people put into those positions who are very technically focused rather than the leaders that those joint multidisciplinary positions require, then that will further reinforce the perception that the support trades are just support trades and not suitable leaders at the institutional level.
3: Well, it sounds like overall you're advocating for picking senior leaders based on talents and experiences rather than trade, which makes a lot of sense to me. Let me switch gears and ask you more about personal side of this journey, because uh, you took quite a bit of time to engage in this kind of research. And when you reflect back on the whole process of writing out this paper, why do you think
2: this research experience is important for the next stage of your military career? I think that where I am now, I am not quite on the cusp. We see that more as a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, but I'm getting ready for it. And furthermore, I am working as a deputy commanding officer, as the senior major in my unit, trying to set an example for the junior majors. The ideas here have taught me a great deal about how we manage our personnel in general in the forces, especially our military personnel and our officers. It has taught me a lot about where our senior leaders come from and the pressures that they experience behind the scenes. These two things together, I hope will help me to do better at my current job. And also, I think that from a personal point of view, it gives me an understanding of where our leaders are coming from and what I can do to be ready and to help My subordinates, my peers, to be ready to take on those responsibilities should that be what we are suited for.
3: Excellent. Well, good luck with these next steps and thank you for being on Battle Rhythm. I know it's a busy time, so I really appreciate you being here.
2: Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day. For
0: the interview today, I'm going to be talking with Justin Massie of the University of Quebec at Montreal and not a stranger to the podcast at all, the co-host of Battle Rhythm, Stephanie Latke of Queens, as they are the founders of a new network for defense and security in Canada called the Network for Strategic Analysis. Welcome to Battle Rhythm. Thank Thank you. you. So the first question to the two of you is the obvious one, which is why a new network? Why a francophone network or a bilingual network emphasizing French security scholars?
3: The inspiration for the this network is that we felt there was a little bit of a language barrier in the conversations on security and defense. And so when the call for the Minds Networks came out, we saw a perfect opportunity to assemble a group of scholars who feel just as comfortable engaging on security and defense matters in French as they do in English so that we could start breaking down that language barrier And when we gathered these scholars, we also not only had to think about the linguistic aspect of of our network, which is really important to us, but we also had to think about a coherent and overarching theme for the network. So by assembling this group of scholars, we saw that international security cooperation was really going to be what would anchor our network thematically, and then from there, we broke it down into three research axes. One focused more on great power dynamics and how a country like Canada can foster international security cooperation in this new international security environment. Uh, the second research axis is international organizations like NATO, like the UN, and the third research axis is on capacity building and the types of partnerships that Canada fosters all over the world.
0: Well, that's, that's a really good, a quick summary of what you guys are going to be focusing on. Justin, uh, how does uh, the research of these these themes fit into what you do in your own research?
4: Well, my past research has been on mostly on uh, coalition military operations on one hand, and a new book I edited with uh, Jean-Nata Parquet on the uh, global power transition and how U.S. allies are perceiving it and reacting to it. And part of these two research projects directly fit with, with the network, and it certainly inform Stephanie and I's motivation to build on that expertise, on that research that we know our friends and colleagues are doing, but has a hard time reaching government uh, officials because a lot of the research is either written in books and journal articles that uh, policymakers don't have time to read. And so one of the objectives that, that our network has is to translate that expertise into very short policy briefs that can directly um, mobilize this expertise and translate it into a very succinct and clear uh, prose to government officials. But the second objective is also to reach out to the general public and to develop the next generation of of scholars that would be interested in working on securing defense uh, research. And that links back to the fact that we are a fully bilingual network because to reach out to the Canadian public and to develop a a new generation of scholars, you need to have those two official languages because we have to work hand in hand, I think, to develop a a better understanding of what's going on in the world and how Canada can perhaps uh, adapt itself to this, uh, I would say, more hostile, more uncertain uh, environment in which we live in.
0: Are you saying there's great power competition these days, Justin?
4: <laughs> Certainly, we can we can see that every day looking in the news, but it's some uh, people are used to that having lived through the Cold War, but I think that the current trends are, are more unprecedented uh, because of what's going on in the US specifically, not just about the Trump administration and, and, and all the uncertainty that surrounds the US president, but also uh, the rise of nativism, of protectionism, and, and even the uh, anti-China movement in, in the U.S. is not specific, specific to the Republicans. It's really something that Joe Biden and, and Trump are, are addressing. And I think it puts Canada in a tough spot because you have to deal with a more hostile environment on one hand, but you can't trust your most, your closest and, and, and most important ally to have your back in these moments. And, and that, I think that creates a very particular situation for Canada.
0: Yeah, uh, we've been talking to the two of us as well as others about how to react to China. And I think that's going to be a major focal point, not only for your research, but also for some of the stuff that the CDSN is going to be doing as well. With our Yearhead Conference in the fall, we're going to have a, a panel on China, because I think we're all struggling to figure out how to deal with China now that it's revealed that its rise is not going to be always covered in a velvet glove. It's, it's some, been very belligerent. But I, I do agree with you that I'm very concerned about this bidding, outbidding process in the United States between the Democrats and Republicans about who could be tougher on China. I think that we all have to be tougher on China to some degree, but I think uh, we need to do that in moderation and have an idea about how to, how to navigate this. And, and the worst thing we could do is try to go to extremes on this. Stephanie, how does your work relate to the network stuff?
3: Well, as you know, my work has a big focus on NATO and whether it's through the prism of NATO operations or nuclear deterrence, or even more recent adaptations of the alliance, like its adoption of a women peace and security policy and action plan. So I see my research fitting most neatly, perhaps in the second and third research axes. So where we look at the role that international organizations can play in the defense of Canada, and also in terms of uh, military capacity building, because NATO has been doing more and more of this through its various training activities. And so the research, whether it's focusing on, on NATO operations or how NATO has institutionalized gender guidelines within its activities, there's a clear connection there. As well, like the three of us are, are, are really involved in Canadian defense conversations and, and debates and policy debates. So of course, that brief exchange that that you had with Justin about you know, what are Canada's options in, in this new environment when China is increasingly hostile. And then again, when you turn to the South and you look to the United States, there's just that feeling that what we always thought was our closest ally has become an unreliable ally. So definitely uh, the first Axis on Great Power competition is an issue that you find yourself constantly revisiting. And of course, that's been the case on this podcast with you, Steve, uh, but also has huge implications for our research as well in in academia. And then of course, through through it all, and not to jump ahead on on the conversation, but COVID-19 has forced us to both revisit our research priorities as scholars, but also how we think about this network. So that has been a consideration that has just been inescapable, as have you, Steve, with the CDSN.
0: Well, since you stole my thunder, why don't you just answer the next question, which is how are you guys changing, adapting to the COVID environment in terms of the plans of the network? I assume big in-person conferences are not going to be the thing to do anymore for at least a while. So what are you guys going to be doing with your time, money, and staff for getting the network for strategic analysis? And you can say the acronym in French much better than I can, or say the name in French. How are you guys adapting besides finding yourself a logo? Which is the most important thing for any network?
3: <laughs> I can start, Steve and the the name in in French is uh, Le Réseau d'Analyse Stratégique. Uh, What I'm most concerned about is the students because uh, we are able to do our workshops and conferences online because we have these established links already that we want to strengthen, but the students may not have those connections already and it's a lot harder, let's say, for students to be able to engage in, in research and policy debates online and to make those connections if they haven't made prior connections in person. So I think for me, the most urgent thing to figure out, and this was kind of a long-winded background, is what we can do and, and set in motion right away so that students are not disadvantaged in this particular period in time, which is very new to, to anyone and, and very difficult to adapt to. So for the students, uh, in answer to, to my own question, I think that a focus on professional development will be key. I think that's a really great way to bring people together to talk about the security and defense issues, but to do it in a way that promotes skill building. So Justine and I were discussing, for instance, about one of the first uh, professional development seminars that we want to hold, which would be, you know, how to write a policy brief. And this session would be held in French. But, you know, when you're doing your research and you're writing these long articles, and, and we know we need to translate those research outputs into more digestible formats for a broader audience, whether that's, you know, Canadian public or people in government it's not always easy to know what to emphasize you know how much of your analytical framework to include, how much empirics to, to build in to your policy brief, and then how to articulate your recommendations in, in the most compelling fashion. So I think these professional development seminars will be will offer some good networking opportunities because those are smaller group settings. There's a lot of interaction. There's a lot of opportunities for feedback. You talk about your research, but at the same time, uh, you talk about it in very practical terms. So those are the little adjustments that we've had to make, having to compensate for the fact that we can't meet in person.
4: If I may add, uh, Stephanie and I are the product of the former DND's program called the Security and Defense Forum. And that, I think, was cut in 2011 due to a perceived lack of, of results, but I see on an everyday basis it's results, and it's the fact that I'm most of my uh, colleagues work on on security and defense issues have been funded when they were graduate students with that program. That program led them to research, to perhaps not have a part-time job on the side, but actually work on research and really focus their interest on security and defense research papers, conferences and everything. It gave me and many others significant opportunities to work on this. I think the fact that I have a PhD uh, and I work with David Haglund uh, when I was at Queen's University doing my PhD is, is a great deal owed to, to that program. And I think part of what Stephanie and I want to offer to the new generation of students is specifically those same opportunities in, of course, a different context. So one of the things we're doing also that we had planned to do actually before the pandemic erupted was um, to have some very short videos on trending issues relate those issues to the research that our uh, network members are doing. And so we've started doing those, those videos with partnership with the CERIUM at the University of Montréal. So far, we very much like the product, the, the, the results, and we are uh, to, here uh, to launch you know, every, by the end of, uh, of August. It's easier to adapt when you're speaking to a broader audience through uh, social networks. I think a second challenge I would add, in addition to to training students and creating those opportunities for them, is to network with people in the government and DD and the Canadian forces. I used to uh, that we would hold events, you know, and just meet on the sidelines and talk, have coffee, shake hands, and everything. And you can't do that right now. And it's hard to create those relationships where you can say that. In, instead of simply writing your policy briefs and sending them to the people you know in government to foster those perhaps closer relationship is hard to do to perhaps um, better inform or just adapt our own um, research questions to, to what is seen as, as most uh, useful for, for D&D officials. And I think that's part of the challenge that's, that we have to address, try to find ways to create those uh, those opportunities of, of networking in a more hybrid or perhaps only virtual uh, settings.
3: And just one last thing, one of the most obvious ways in which we've adapted is to build COVID-19 into our research outputs, our very first uh, publications on, on the website that will go live very soon, were related to COVID-19 and, of course, how this has impacted and created uh, new concerns for Canadian defense, from the safety of the armed forces to the way that we conduct our operations abroad. And one of our research leads, Theo McLaughlin, from Université University Montreal, uh, wrote a, a really interesting policy brief on uh, how COVID-19 is impacting capacity building. And that will also be the topic of His first uh, set of seminars due out this fall, so the the more direct impact, I suppose, is in terms of the actual topics that we're covering, because COVID-19 has a direct impact there too.
0: So you guys are doing this stuff at a very interesting time, and one of the interesting things that's going on these days is that the culture of the calf may change with a new leadership. One of the favorite games in town is to try to guess who's giving the next CDS. And Stephanie has blessed me with a responsibility of organizing the betting pool so that folks inside the academic defense community. But since you guys shared with me your your ballots, your 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 bets, I'm curious as to what you expect to happen when Justin Trudeau gets a, a breather from testifying on various scandals and has to think about replacing John Vance with a new CDS. Justin, what are you thinking? What's what's your bet?
4: I won't go into uh, specific names, but my hunch would be to appoint a woman. The first woman has a CDS. I think it's a good opportunity. If you want to change a culture, you have to, to show that change right from the from the top, and I think it would be a, a good opportunity, especially for a government that says is all about gender e- equity. Perhaps that could be a significant uh, way to show it in concrete ways. There are a few candidates uh, that that are that are uh, possibilities right now for that for that position, and I think it would be the smart move. However, I'd caution that new person, whoever it is, that with the new CDS uh, position, that person will have a um, I would say a difficult mandate. I think that. Trying to convince Canadians to keep the current, if not increase it, because specifically as we said earlier, uh, that hostile environment in which we live in now, and we the lack of reliability from our most trusted ally used to be most trusted ally, I think puts Canada in a tough position where we have to uh, rely more on ourselves than on others, and that of course needs budgets to support that self-reliance, and unfortunately I don't foresee any mid-COVID recession a good uh, context for, for keeping the current, if not increased, the DND's budget. In all of the past recessions that Canada went through, the defence budget was always cut to uh, mitigate the impact of that recession. It's hard for me to imagine that today would be different, d- despite the fact that the needs would be even more important than, than the one we had uh, foreseen the last um, defense policy review in 2017. And I think so. On one hand, I think it's a good opportunity to, to name a woman. On the other hand, that person, the next CDS, will have a tough job, I think, at, at, the, at the head of the Kenyan military.
3: We've uh, had this discussion both uh, online and offline, Steve, and now we have this this bed going, and I don't want to reveal who I whose name I threw in the hat, but I I, I will say this. uh, Had you asked me the question six months ago, I would have said, oh, I think it might be uh, General Jean McClancy or General Chris Whitecross. And... Since then, they both retired. Now, I don't know whether or not you know they could be still offered the position and reconsider retirement, and, and uh, one of them end up being the next CDS. But those would have been my top guesses. And of course, not knowing really when the CDS was going to retire, despite your many questions to him about the topics, Steve. And now, what we're left with after a, a slew of retirements this summer, you know, maybe a lot more names that people uh, are unfamiliar with. I'm thinking about about White Cross in particular and and your reference to culture change. I mean, White Cross had been the one doing the media rounds after uh, the, the Deschamps report came out and the whole uh, journey to eradicate sexual misconduct within the forces was was launched in earnest with uh, Op Honor and the various initiatives that came out of the Department of National Defense and the Canadian Armed Forces to, to address misconduct. And of course, there's been the most recent policy on, on hateful conduct as well that we talked about in the podcast recently. So when it comes to, to really uh, pursuing and it, or, or at least keeping the momentum of cultural change within the Armed forces, White Cross would have made uh, a lot of sense because she was experienced on those files, had been a visible spokesperson for Armed forces on the topic in the past. Uh, and after her time uh, at NATO as Commandant of the NATO Defense College, it would have been you know a nice transition to come back as uh, the CDS. Uh, right after that.
0: We have to move on. So I want to thank the two of you for joining us today. I'm looking forward to having Raz as a partner of the CDSN. As we have a lot of objectives and that overlap as well as a lot of overlap of amongst our personnel as well. I think that you guys are doing really important work, that there's so much good stuff being done by francophones in Canada on defense stuff. Uh, when we were building the CDSN, I was aiming to have linguistic parity uh, on the leadership team, and it wasn't very hard to accomplish because a lot of the smart people in Canada do their work in both English and French. So, you know, the two of you, Jesu Boucher, Phil Lagasse, Andrew Charon, I could go on and on with the, the folks who are doing this stuff, but there are linguistically lame folks like myself that need your help to translate the smart French into, into English. So I appreciate what you guys are doing. I know that you have important tasks ahead of you, such as figuring out a logo, because that's so very important. That was our first priority. And we'll be working with this new network to create a spinoff podcast in French, so that way Battle Rhythm can have a French partner. We're working on that now, and hopefully we'll be able to and launch in the fall. And again, I congratulate you too on your success in getting this grant. I wish you luck in doing all the requirements that that DD imposes upon you guys. We're here to help you in everything that you guys do now and into the future. So, good luck and uh, thanks for being on Battle Rhythm.
4: Thank you very much, Steve, for your support. Much appreciated.
3: Thank you. Very excited about the next steps. And I'm glad that we got to talk about the Réseau d'Analyse Strategique on Battle Rhythm.
0: On the R&R segment, I want to focus on one serious book and then two fun things to watch. The serious book is Caitlin Talmadge's Dictator's Army. The book considers what causes some authoritarian militaries to be more effective than others. And this is really interesting for a number of reasons. One is that the concept itself of battlefield effectiveness is hard to measure. And she does a really good job of thinking about it and being able to convey what she means by it. The second thing is, is that as most of the adversaries that the United States and Canada and NATO's had to deal with are authoritarian regimes, it's important to understand under what conditions they're going to be more or less effective so that we don't over or underrate any of them and that we're well prepared for them. And so she's got an interesting argument about what causes them to be more or less effective. And she uses cases both from the Vietnam War, North and South Vietnam, and then she does Iran and Iraq in the 1980s. And I think it's a really interesting book, and I've already learned a lot about it. And it's also good to read from a standpoint of how to take academic work and make it accessible, make it a clear book. I'm definitely using it as a model for the current project I'm working on. The next thing I would like to recommend is Star Wars Rebels. It's a TV show, an animated TV show on Disney Plus, about a group of small rebels in between essentially the Clone Wars and the Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars. It's about sort of the roots of the rebellion. And it's a really moving story. And it's also often fun, always engaging. And I watch it while I treadmill. It's just a great Star Wars story. And we could always use more Star Wars stories. Some of the stuff that we see in Mandalorian has its roots in. Star Wars Clone Wars and in Star Wars Rebels, so it'll give you a little bit of continuity. And it's just fun. The third thing is Eurovision. It's a movie on Netflix starring Will Ferrell and that great Canadian actress, Rachel McAdams. And it's a fun look at this singing competition that I've never paid attention to, but I might the next time because it's just so silly. And it has in the movie a lot of the real contestants where the focus, of course, is on these two strange Icelanders who fall into the competition and then hijinks ensues. The songs are funny and sweet and amusing and interesting and the performances are amazing. And it runs a little long, but I think we could use some long, silly entertainment at this time. So those are what I recommend for this week. Be well, wash your hands, wear a mask, keep your distance, stay at home, and just find ways to to get through it. Take care. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at cdsnrcds or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.